Hi there, Andrew Dunkley here, and thanks for joining us on another edition of Space Nuts. Lots to come today. We'll be talking about a meteorite that uh, was discovered not recently. They've uh, known about it for a few years, but they've uh, made a discovery in regard to this one. It was found in the Sahara Desert, so we'll tell you all about that. It's got uh, quite a fascinating backstory. And we talked about it recently, courtesy of an audience question, that of whether or not dark, uh, dark matter stars might exist. Well, now... The James Webb Space Telescope is suggesting that there is one out there. Maybe more than one, but we'll uh, be talking about that. Potentially three. (laughs) Uh, And we've got audience questions. A a couple of left field questions uh, from Scott, Mikey and Graham. We'll tackle all of that today on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us to go on and on and on and on and on about all of that is a, pro- a professor we know and love so well, <laughs> Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Uh, nice to talk to you again, Andrew. And um, yeah, I think we both can go on and on and on and on about our respective yeah. things. I've been doing it for a living for 40 years. Yeah. That's Just going on and on and on about little stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, we, uh, oh, by the way, uh, all well in your world? You've... Yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, we were down last week at uh, Karula in uh, West, sorry, in South Australia. Uh-huh. which is um, right at the northern end of the Flinders Ranges. And we were there because they have just been declared a dark sky sanctuary. So oh, fantastic. A bit of a celebration that we were involved with. Uh, but yeah. it was very nice to visit. It's an extraordinary place uh, geologically. Um, it was widely prospected after the Second World War for uranium. Uh, there is uranium there. There is indeed a uranium mine there. But there's, um, but, but it's a natural environment that, uh, is highly unspoiled, apart from the roads that lead to the uranium prospecting sites, which um, let you actually access some of the most extraordinary scenery I think you've mm-hmm. seen in uh, in Australia. Much remarkable. Yeah. It's really good that you and Marnie can bring darkness to the world. <laughs> That's our mission. That's right. <laughs> um, Marnie uh, styles herself, because she is the uh, princess of darkness, she styles herself a lady of the night. Oh, that's uh, well, that might seem mean to me also. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, well, but she's not that. <laughs> yeah, she says, that I'm, I'm, am I a lady of the night? She says, it always goes down well in talk. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Oh, that's terrific. Um, so that'll be making a lot of astronomers very happy. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, get on to our first topic. And this is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, well, as we mentioned at the start, uh, about a meteorite, this first story. This is a meteorite that they found in the Sahara Desert, uh, well, a little while back, uh, but they've been able to study it. And what's fascinating, fascinating about it is that it's an earth rock. So how can it be a meteorite? Well, that therein lies the question, uh, Fred, <laughs> no, uh, because no, that looks like it is the case, and it's a, it's a first of its kind find by the sound of it. It's certainly the first uh, that has had this uh, idea that it might have come from Earth uh, tanked onto it. And it's still, I suspect it's still scientifically uh, a debatable issue as to mm. whether it did come from Earth, but the evidence seems to point that way. So what we're talking about is a meteorite. All meteorites have names. 
This one is called Northwest Africa 13188. Very glamorous name. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think actually it might be in a private collection. I'm not sure, but it's been analyzed by uh, geologists um, as you would uh, um, because um, pe- people, uh, you know, people who think they've got a meteorite usually want to go to a geologist uh, to check whether it really is a meteorite. Yeah, uh, because uh, some of them are just stones, you know. They're not. Other people say, oh, "I've got a meteorite here," but yeah, well, it's just a rock. It's very hard actually to to, to identify them. Anyway, this one has been identified. It, it meets all the all the uh, characteristics of uh, of the meteorite. It's been clearly been heated uh, on its outer surface, um, assumably by its passage through the atmosphere. Uh, but it's. Um, Geophysicists in the French National Centre for Scientific Research, uh, uh, they are basically investigating this. And what has uh, led to the idea that it might be the first known boomerang meteorite is its um, its composition is very, very closely matching uh, the composition of rocks in the Earth. Yeah, um, and it's it, it's um, what what we call isotopes, the the sort of exact atomic structure uh, of the atoms uh, that the isotope that the isotopes match uh, what we find on Earth, um, and there is there's some really interesting um, what you might call nuances to this because yes, those isotopes are, are matching, mm. but some of them are, are their ratios. Uh, the isotope ratios have changed a little bit. And so what the these scientists are suggesting is that that change has been due to the fact that this rock has been in orbit around the Earth uh, and has been bombarded by cosmic rays because cosmic rays are subatomic particles. They, they're, they're in space, hence the name. Uh, we actually don't know the origin of some cosmic rays. A lot of them probably come from star explosions, but um, there's a sort of high energy background that uh, has uh, still, I think, has people scratching their heads. Some of them are from Russia. Um, I, I'm very aware of a cosmonaut named Ray. <laughs> you should save that for the dad jokes that we do on TikTok. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should. What do you call a Russia? That no. Yeah, never mind. Anyway, um, the the um, the the there's a suggestion that the isotope ratios have changed because of their um, bombardment by cosmic rays, and and the amount of change leads these scientists to believe that they've been uh, bombarded by cosmic rays for at least two thousand and year two thousand years, and possibly more like ten thousand years. Mm. Um, and so, what that is suggesting that it, this rock somehow came from Earth ten thousand years ago. Now, the uh, the candidates for an event on the Earth's surface that would send a rock into orbit, uh, which would orbit for a while and then eventually come come back again, uh, the candidates are first of all a volcanic eruption, uh, and um, you, we've had a very big one quite recently, the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai. Uh, volcano in Tonga uh, was it two years ago now? It's a while. Yeah, it's getting on. Yeah, um, that actually hurled rocks, uh, but not into orbit. Uh, apparently, the debris uh, that was emitted by that blast uh, peaked at around fifty-eight kilometers, thirty-six miles, uh, and that's um, not high enough to 
to, to get it to orbit, um, you, you'd, you'd need to propel it higher and actually give it a sort of uh, horizontal velocity of some sort as well for it to stay in orbit. Yeah. Uh, so um, it, it, these rocks went high into the atmosphere, but weren't high enough to to actually um, become uh, an earth an earth bound or, or a, an earth rock that is suddenly in orbit. Um, so the other uh, catastrophic or, or high energy event that they postulate and they think this is the likely one is an asteroid impact. Uh, excuse me, because an asteroid impact generates huge amounts of energy uh, and can send rocks very high. In fact, uh, it can put rocks into orbit. And we think that's why here on Earth we see meteorites from the planet Mars. Um, there are some meteorites uh, which are called Martian meteorites, which we know have come from Mars. And we know that because of the um, traces of, of gas that, that are en en entrapped in them, which match uh, Mars's atmosphere exactly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... Um, I think there are about 300 Martian meteorites known now. Okay. They're classified into different uh, different types. Uh, so it looks as though uh, what we might have is a scenario where something hits the Earth 10,000 years ago or thereabouts, maybe a little bit before that, uh, propels debris into space. Some of it stays in orbit. That, that orbit gradually decays uh, as orbits do. Uh, and eventually this bit of rock comes back through the Earth's atmosphere, gets heated, uh, again, uh, by its passage through the atmosphere and turns up as a meteorite in northwest Africa, in fact, in the Sahara. Yes, the Sahara was. Desert, where it was found. So, yeah, yeah a really interesting story. Um, I suspect that there, that there's still, it's still, you know, a likely candidate for debate, this, this tale. Uh, but um, the, the person, uh, you know, the, the person who's leading this study is clearly quite convinced that, uh, that that's where it came from. And how long ago are we thinking? Uh, roughly 10,000 years. Right. Um, so um, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, we don't actually know where the impact that the, the crater was. Um, I, I think uh, one, of the, one of the things that this team in front have looked at is to try and find an impact crater that might actually uh, fit the bill for that. But, <clears throat> excuse me, these are... Um, uh, these are, you know, the 10,000 years ago is quite young. Um, and if uh, it would, they reckon it would form a crater uh, probably uh, something like, you know, 20 kilometres wide or something oh, of that great. sort. Yeah, it would uh, have to be a massive impact to cause it, that amount it, of velocity. It, it would, that's right, exactly. And, uh, you know, most most of the craters that, fit the bill on that are millions of years old rather than thousands. So there is a there is a problem here, I think. Yeah, it sounds uh, like it. Yeah. But uh, still a really interesting idea. And it's still, you know, uh, even if even if it hasn't come from Earth, it's remarkable that it's it's its structure and composition match Earth rocks very well. Either way, it's a fascinating story. Yeah. yeah. And I believe if it is though an Earth rock that's been out into space and then landed back on the Sahara Desert, that that's a first. I mean, it's probably not the first, but it's the first one we've found. Yeah. Uh, haven't they also found Earth rocks on the Moon? Did we cover that? Uh, they found Moon rocks on Earth. Moon rocks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I thought they uh, found something on the Moon. They might. Uh, that. Not sure yeah. about that. Not sure yeah. about that. Um, 
the, this, uh, there's certainly uh, moon rocks on Earth, like like the ones we get from Mars. They're, they're created by impact craters yeah. uh, or impact events. Um, yeah. Um, now, hang on, there it is. 1971, the Apollo astronauts yeah. found a chunk of Earth that they dug up on the moon. There you are. All right. I so thought I'd heard about that somewhere. That's that's well done. Well yeah. done. Thank you. Uh, that's a really interesting one. Maybe, who knows, maybe you've made a link there. The, these two things might come from the same event. Well, that's it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, that who, could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow, that, follow up on that because I didn't, um, yeah, I, I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So which Apollo did I say it was? <laughs> Well, if it's 1971, it's probably, uh, it would be 15, is it? Uh, yeah, uh, no, uh, 15. 16, uh, 16 was sort of 72. Yeah, I could have Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but uh, no, look, it's definitely something worth um, pursuing. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. they're doing more and more examination of this yeah. particular yeah. meter, right, to see if they can um, figure it all out. But uh, yeah, fascinating story. The boomerang asteroid and uh yeah if you want to read up on it it's on the space.com website uh fred um we've got a live studio audience um viewing us today through uh various outlets um facebook youtube and rumble uh one of them is uh, uh one of our regular listeners uh, misty west who's um sent us a terrible dad joke i th- <laughs> geez misty i thought we were bad this is <laughs> Plain terrible. I thought about putting an observatory in my house, but the cost was astronomical. <laughs> With that, we'll take a breath. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're live. here, also. Space Nuts. Now, uh, once again, the James Webb Space Telescope is in the news. It's been sort of looking around going, oh, what's that? And uh, that's how it sounds, by the way. And it has found something that we uh, did discuss recently, thanks to an audience question about whether or not there could be dark matter stars. And we kind of debated it and thought, well, you know, how can it be a star if it's dark matter? Well, the James Webb Space Telescope might have discovered not one, not two, but three of these weird things. Yes, that's right. And uh, we have to preface this by noting that this is entirely hypothetical. Yes. Uh, But the idea is that if you have, uh, and particularly this might occur in the early universe where the density of dark matter was probably higher than it is now. Uh, If you you have... um, a star uh, that is formed by the collapse of a cloud of gas and dark matter. And, th- and that's how we, we know that stars are formed that way. Um, normally, it's the, the dark matter that, uh, that sort of concentrates uh, the gas itself. That's how a galaxy starts. So you've got this web of dark matter uh, that is left over from the Big Bang itself. That has gravitational pull, which attracts the hydrogen, hydrogen uh, uh, comes together, clumps together. I'm doing all this with my hands. I hope yeah, I can see that. Listeners can... <laughs> clumps <laughs> together. People with very good hearing would be able to hear you doing that. Yes, they, they would. They'd have to have very good hearing indeed. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so and that that clumps together and eventually collapses into uh, a, a cloud, a, a highly dense cloud under its own gravity. Uh, the pressure goes up, the temperature goes up. It goes up high enough that you can trigger nuclear fusion, and then you've got a star. 
So, uh, but what the hypothesis for uh, dark stars is, uh, is something that's a, a bit different. If you imagine um, a, a mixture of the hydrogen and the dark matter, uh, and it's being it's collapsing to form a star, you hope. Uh, but what happens is that uh, as the dark matter is compressed, there is a hypothesis that dark matter particles can self-annihilate so that they they come together and they just disappear and produce, you know, electromagnetic radiation, a bit like mm. antimatter and matter. Yeah. And so what they're, what they're saying is if that happens, if you've got this mixture of gas and dark matter that collapses um, and it sort of wants to be a star, but the the dark matter itself, just by its self-annihilation, is, is creating energy. So it's producing light and heat. And that stops the hydrogen itself um, becoming a normal star. So what you've got is this star that's that's in a way kind of frothy. It's it's being prevented from collapsing into a normal star by the amount of energy that the annihilating dark matter is producing. Okay. And, and so uh, it, it doesn't become a normal star. Um, so the suggestion is that it does become a star, but it's gigantic. Uh, and one of the numbers that's being banded around is that a dark star could be 10 times the diameter of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Wow. Uh, so that's, what's that? That's three, 300, uh, 300 million uh, kilometers is the diameter of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Uh, so if you multiply that by 10, you've got 3 billion kilometers, which is a very, very big star indeed. Yeah. Well, it's and, easy to spot. Well, that's right. And in fact, that is the, the trick. That's why the, these scientists who've been using the, uh, uh, are looking at a survey produced by the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, why they're excited by it? Because they, they are, they're going to be big. And they're going to be bright. They actually could be uh, a lot brighter just because of the the, the size of them, and um, you know the, the the fact that there's still energy being being created. Mm. Um, so what the scientists uh, in question have done, and I haven't said where they are, but I think I'm right in saying this is at the University of Texas at Austin uh, in the U.S. So these are scientists who uh, have looked. Uh, through James Webb Space Telescope data, something called the Advanced Deep Extragalactic Survey, uh, which is, I think, uh, publicly available probably. Um, and what they've looked for is objects that are very compact, uh, but have the signature, the spectral signature of being a long way away. In other words, they're highly redshifted. Uh, and so uh, they found three candidates for that. Uh, it's uh, it's r really really interesting uh you, what you've got to do here i think is is work out a way that you can differentiate between one of these dark scar dark scar dark stars which are very large and a compact galaxy because a compact galaxy might also look like this at the distance that the james webb telescope is is looking at but they think they're seeing in the spectrum of these things, evidence that they're not galaxies that they're seeing, that they're, they're looking at dark stars. And they will be the first candidates uh, for such an object. Um, if, if it can be proven, uh, and this uh, clearly is going to generate much more research, 
uh, what you've got is something that might give us a few more hints as to what dark matter is. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, that's always a good thing at the moment. Any ideas are good ones? Send your ideas on the postcard, please. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the dark, dark matter is an elusive material. It would be fantastic to um, be able to shine some light on it, if I can put it that way, by means of these dark stars. Mm. I, I think the only thing that bothers me about this is that um, dark matter doesn't interact directly with matter as we know it, mm -hmm. and yet if there are dark stars that are in existence, you've got a correlation between dark matter and real matter and one's disturbing the other. So how can that be? Because um, the, the only way that dark matter does interact with normal matter is gravitationally. Uh, yeah. It's the one thing, nothing else, uh, you know, it doesn't sort of talk to normal atoms uh, they can't shake hands. They can't shake hands. They can't. The uh, dark matter can't block uh, the light of brighter things behind it because it doesn't interact with electromagnetic radiation. But the only thing it does do is generates gravity, and gravity, of course, is is common to both both dark matter and normal matter. Uh, and so that's that's the idea that you've got a gravitational collapse of a mixture of these two things: real matter and dark matter. Uh, at a very high density, and that's that's the critical thing about this. It, they collapse to a high density so that you get uh, some shining of the stars but also shining of the dark matter itself because of the annihilation. Uh, it's a really interesting story and um, one that um, I think uh, could have ramifications. I think we should follow this one as it evolves. Oh, absolutely. And I, I suppose the fact that they've found more than one makes it even more fascinating because a lot of the time we can say, all right, we've found one thing yeah. and that is a planet called Earth that has life, but we've never found another one. So we can't say definitively that life exists beyond that one example. But here we've got three potential yeah. candidates. Yeah, that's right. So so really quite remarkable. Um, I, I mean, they, you know, Again, there's still the possibility they might turn out to be highly compact galaxies. Hmm. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, I think it's uh, a very intriguing story. It sure is. We'll keep an eye on that one. And I dare say it's going to spawn a whole bunch of audience questions because yeah. it's just, uh, it just seems to be the topic at the moment, dark matter, black holes, uh, dogs and cats living together. People really want to know about that stuff. <laughs> We've got that too now. Yeah, you have, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, nearly, they're nearly talking to each other as well. I like dark matter and real matter. Then, mm, yeah, but they're not touching each other. Well, they did accidentally this morning. <laughs> the cat, the cat, still takes a very dim view of the dog, but that's that's usually how it goes, Fred. Yeah, yeah. that's just that's just normal Earth life <laughs> stuff, it is, isn't it? Yeah, and so maybe dark matter takes a dim view of real matter. Who knows? We. It's a, yeah. Highly likely. Highly likely. All right. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. As we we're, we're shuffling along rather quickly today. Um, we've got to slow down. Uh, but uh, we've got a few questions. Uh, I, I'm going to hit you with the first one because it, it does dovetail with that um, dark star theory. Uh, this comes from Scott. Kia ora, Fred and Andrew. 
Scott Cooden here from Christchurch NZ. I have so many questions, but I'll start with these two. Could the reason dark matter doesn't interact with light or build structures is that it hasn't gone through the Higgs field? Maybe there wasn't enough Higgs to go around. Thoughts on that, mate? Also, what do you think about afterlife time? It took 14 billion years for this life, but felt like just now. When we're gone, it could take trillions of years, but we wouldn't notice it until the next life. Even then, we could end up in a 14 billion year structure. I could go on and on. But just your quick thoughts on an afterlife or time when we don't exist, how fast it travels. Thanks, Fred and Andrew. Wow, that's deep. It's uh, very deep. Yeah, very deep. Thank you, Scott. Uh, hope you're well. Um I guess first up, the dark matter Higgs field scenario. Yes, it's a really interesting question. And um, I guess we would assume that dark matter is uh, affected or influenced by the Higgs field. So the Higgs field is, it's like all things in, you know, this sort of subatomic physics, you can imagine it as a particle or a field. Uh, like a force field. Uh, and the Higgs field is the element which is represented by the Higgs boson, which, as we know, was found in 2012 by uh, at the Large Hadron Collider. The so-called uh, God particle? Yeah, it was. Mm. Not a good name, but it was. No, probably. Uh, it's, so the Higgs field basically is what gives other particles their mass. And we do know that... Uh, dark matter particles have mass because they have gravitational attraction. And so it, one would assume that they interact with the Higgs field in the same way that normal matter particles do. Uh, but it, like so many things about dark matter, <laughs> this is something that may still prove to be wrong. It might, you know, might not be a certainty. But my assumption would be that, yes, dark matter is bound by the the effect of the Higgs boson, the Higgs field, uh, in just the same way as normal matter is, just because it, it it basically has gravitational attraction, it has mass. Okay, that was simple. Uh, well, it's e- easier than the next bit, though. Yes, um, after lifetime. Now, I've got to confess, Scott, I'm not quite sure where you're coming from here, but I saw Fred nodding. Well, I so I must yes, I'm kind of reading between the lines here as well from Scott, but I wonder if so so. Scott's point is that it's taken us 13.8, 14 billion years for us to evolve. If you yeah. include the period when, you know, the element elements were being made by nuclear synthesis within within stars and all of that stuff. So um, he's he is saying, okay, we've got a planet full of sentient beings, conscious beings who can understand what time is. Um, and we can look back 14... 13.8 billion years, uh, and sort of see the history of the universe and understand how we got here. Uh, so I think what he's saying is, if we disappear as a species, and there's no other sentient beings in the universe, which mm. is possible and a bit spooky, uh, the next time, a, a, you know, organisms like us evolve. Will they notice that the universe, you know, that might be trillions of years down the track? Will they notice that? And I, I, I think um, I, 
the way I'm understanding this question is it goes to some other issues which are about, some people have argued that unless you've got consciousness, the universe isn't real. You know, so that it's, it's like um, uh, that argument about um, the trees fall down in forests when nobody's looking, yeah. that sort of thing. Well, if, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around, can you still hear it? That kind of thing. Yes, yeah, that's right. So you, you know, it's it's the um, and it, it goes into it goes back to quantum theory where um, particles can exist in superposition. You know, we know that things can be in many places at the same time and different states altogether until you look at them, and it's the act of looking at them or basically making them interact with the outside world, which is really what you're saying. But it's that that causes that quantum superposition to be broken mm. uh, and you, you you can you can see things in one place rather than many places at once so I, th- I think um, part of this idea is uh, okay if there's nobody here to see the universe does it really exist uh, yeah. so is the clock still ticking or do we you know does the next sentient set of sentient beings that emerge still only see 14 30.8 billion years in the past? Because they don't know about the trillion years that's elapsed since we were there. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. Fascinating and, and deep discussion, and you could go on for hours. Uh, and and it, it sort of reminds me of a, a discussion we had some time ago about a theory that was put forward that our existence is basically because of our consciousness. Yes, that yeah. you know we only exist because we've created this scenario, if we can call it that. Uh, and and <laughs> that's just too mind blowingly yeah. weird. That's uh, your sound, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. But the other thing I thought was, okay, you know, we know the the universe is thirteen point eight billion years old, and if we vanish and you know it all happens again, will they who become whatever they become in the um, twinkle of time ahead of us um, know anything about the fact that we existed, or you know, has it happened before? Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. They might not know that. They wouldn't yeah. know that the universe was older, though. That just by yes, I suppose you know, because so. you can, you can, you know, looking at the redshift and things like that, you can get the age of the universe. Yeah, but it, it did prompt another question in my mind. Um, when the Big Bang happened, did we, in some form, already exist? Whether it was molecular or whatever, we we had to be around at the beginning, didn't we, to be created, or did we get created? by a consequence of the reactions that occurred thereafter. Yeah. So all the, all the bits that happen. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, in, in fact, you know, you, you, you're right in the sense that, uh, okay, so we are mostly H2O. Mm. Uh, so two-thirds of what we're made of is hydrogen, and most of that came from the Big Bang. So your point is well made that we, we are Big Bangers. We, we've, we've basically got... Uh, uh, atoms in our bodies that that were created a, a gazillionth of a second after the Big Bang, because uh, you know the Big Bang itself, uh, the energies were too high for for protons and things to form. But soon afterwards, they did. Yeah. Um, well, most of us are H two O. A couple of my mates are C O H, but um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> couldn't but, help it. <laughs> Uh, dear. All right. Thank you, Scott. You've, um, I think you've opened up a can of worms. We're going to get a lot of people on this, um, probably on social media, having a bit of a chat about it because 
I've noticed with social media that uh, the element, the, the the theory of time is often debated. Some people say, "Look, we only made it up. Humans created time. There is yeah. no such thing." Yeah. So it just goes on and on and on. Uh, thanks, Scott. Let's move on to the next question from Mikey, who's uh, been a semi-regular of ours. Hey, Fred and Andrew, it's Mikey from Illinois with another asteroid question for you guys. Um, last time we had talked about, or you guys had answered a question about, um, I would love to talk to you guys, but we did not talk in person. A question about uh, nuclear bombs and asteroids. And it got me thinking, if we did send a bomb to redirect an asteroid, on Earth, at least, the, the shockwave, I assume be what would redirect or you know cause damage to something here in er or in space there's no air so what i guess i'm asking what is the force that pushes the asteroid and sends it in another direction if not air being pushed i hope that makes sense guys and uh thanks for everything no worries, Mikey. I think with the DART test, it was kinetic energy, wasn't it? That um, Yes, that's right. Change. Yeah, it was, absolutely. Um, but uh, Mikey's right, actually, because um, when we talked about uh, asteroid, the, 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 the idea from observations that um, something like half of asteroids might be rubble piles. Mm. I don't know if you remember that conversation. Yeah. The, the, and it turns out that the Emirates. Yeah. It turns out that they are more robust than solid asteroids. Um, and so the the thinking was, I think we talked about the idea that if you let, detonated a nuclear bomb next to one of those, they might be more resistant to being blown apart uh, by the shockwave. Yeah. But Mike is absolutely right. <laughs> There's a vacuum in space. Uh, it's uh, it's it's not quite a vacuum. It's a uh, Dyson. Uh, <laughs> it could be, yeah. I, I think I've got a, I'm on Dyson. a roll today. You're on a roll, but I think Dyson's are rather more than a vacuum. Aren't they? There <laughs> we go. <laughs> you can mop them with you those mops and all sorts. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, uh, notwithstanding all that. Um, we do get shockwaves in space because we see them all the time in... Gravitational waves. No, um, real shockwaves through the interstellar oh, okay. medium. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, um, you know, in a, in a way, we think that's why what triggers star formation is density waves, which are kind of shockwave. They're a wave passing through uh, this rarefied gas in galaxies. Uh, but um, when it comes to a nuclear detonation, um, I suspect the medium might still be the very low density residual gas that there is in the solar system. But I would really should look more at this because um, it could just be the blast of material that is being expelled by the, by the nuclear weapon itself. The fact that it's, you know, th th there's, there's a blast of material and um, the radiation itself because the radiation has a pressure uh, and the, the radiation that comes from, and by that I mean electromagnetic radiation as well as subatomic particles, uh, that's all going to effectively impact the asteroid. Um, 
I would like to follow up a bit more on that, Mikey, because you've raised an interesting question there. So I'm going to put an asterisk next to my nose uh, and find out about just what the mechanism would be when a nuclear bomb is detonated next to an asteroid. Why is it mm. going to shift its orbit? Yeah, it's a good uh, it's a good question. Um, I wonder if it'd be the same as setting off a bomb underwater. Is it, is it a similar concept? Except. You know, you've got you do have um, a very dense medium there that you've yeah, got you to do. interact with. So yeah, yeah. the water is pretty dumb. Um, yeah, okay. Good thing it's uh, there, though. There's yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of pressure, and this is a sort of a side note, uh, but uh, I I've been on the radio the last few mornings, and I've been keeping an eye on the barometric pressure. Yeah. Uh, when when I was a kid, they used to refer to very high barometric pressure as an anticyclone, but that you don't hear them say that anymore. But uh, this morning, while I was on air, I looked at the barometer, and it was 1,041. Mm. And I yep. thought, that's really high. I've never seen it that high. So we did some searching around, and one of my audience members sent me a, a link to the Bureau's, um, uh, some Bureau data, which indicated that the, the highest barometric pressure ever recorded in Australia was 1,042. The highest ever recorded in the world was in Russia in 1968, which was 1,082, which is okay. extraordinarily high. Yep. But I thought, I, I don't remember ever seeing the barometer hit 1,040 in, in Dubbo, where I am, in all the time I've been reading weather, and that's, you know, 20,000 years, 20-something years. But 1,041 <laughs> is what it hit this morning. That, that just blew me away. We are certainly sitting in a high-pressure region. Um, um, I'm going to be very rude and go and see what my barometer says right now. Okay. Well, that's not rude. Let's let's find out. Because uh, the interesting difference I noticed was that, uh, because I was looking at the weather station information on the roof of the radio station, we've got a weather station right on top. And we're on top of a hill as well, so we're we're a little bit higher up than the airport. And the airport reading, even though it was high, at uh, Dubbo Regional Airport was a thousand and thirty six point six. So there was quite a difference between the two, uh, which is hard to explain oh, because yeah. the lower you're down, the, the the lower the pressure, I think, or is it the opposite? I don't know. Sorry, what I missed all that. One thousand and thirty seven. So that's high. Yeah, it is very high. And um, mine's sort of corrected for sea level. I don't know whether yours is true. Uh, don't. Because if it's not, then it's even higher because you're at, at meters, 267 metres. Metres, yeah. 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 Well, the radio station would be a bit higher than that. Yeah. Uh, uh, the airport reading was what I was telling people when you uh, stepped out. It was 1,036.6 at uh, this morning in Dubbo. Okay. I mean, yeah. it fluctuates. It's never constant. It's always no. That's right. It's always going up and down. Yeah. But uh, I thought a thousand and forty-one was, um, yeah, way up there. Quite, quite amazing. Just wanted to mention that, by the by, because we're talking about pressure and all that kind of. Oh, no, th- yes, great stuff. I, uh, mm. I love. All right. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, we've got one more question. This comes from Graham. Um, this one's a little bit of, out of left field, Fred. Hello, it's Graham from London. I like your podcast a lot. Listen to it all the time. It's fair to say I'm a fan. I've got a quick question. Um, do you think it's possible for a planet that evolves life and has a watery surface on a significant 
um, amount of it to evolve into a giant planetary eyeball. Uh, thinking of um, you know mushrooms linking plants together over enough billions of times, water, um, plants in the water uniting, and everything like that. I know it sounds silly, and it sounds clearer in my head than it does when it comes out of my mouth. <laughs> but there could be giant planetary eyeballs in space staring across the vast emptiness. Mm. I think I think that's clear. I uh, love the show. Keep going. And hello, everybody out there. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much, Graham. Uh, It poses a fascinating theory as to whether or not a life form could grow to a point where it became an eye, the size of a planet or something to that effect. Uh, We do have massive life forms living on Earth, and I'm not talking about blue whales, but there is a particular forest, the name of which escapes my mind at the moment, that covers thousands of square kilometres, and it's mm. technically one plant mm. that's just spread itself out. So it does, you know, he's not um, he's not being silly. This ha- this can happen, at least in that form. But could it go to another level? Is um, is the Great Barrier Reef um, a, a single yeah, organism the, as well? It is classified as the biggest organism on Earth, I believe. But uh, I don't. Yeah. But it's made up of lots and lots and lots of little creatures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whereas the forest is just one. Yes, it's one yeah. plant. Yeah. And uh, I think there was another story I read um, where I think it was a fungus that was also uh, quite massive uh, that was found uh, somewhere in Europe, I think, and covers quite a huge amount of uh, ground. That might be the one I'm talking about that's thousands of kilometres. The uh, the aspen tree, I think, is the one okay. that is, um, that's got... Uh, it's about eight kilometres long. I mean, uh, yeah, that's um, that's an, that's probably an example of what he's alluding to. Um, so uh, the, the the Earth, so a planet like the Earth, um, even if it's covered with water, hundred uh, percent, it's got to have a it's got to have a rocky core, mm. um, and so. In the sense that, um, you know, imagining a physical representation of an eyeball, uh, it's never going to happen uh, that you, you've got something that's hollow or at least uh, filled with a fluid that's light transmitting. Uh, so, so you're always going to have a rocky ball with something on top of it. And in the first case, it's water. In the case of many other objects, it's water with a layer of ice on top. Yeah. So they are common. Um yeah, and whether you could have an organism that uh, arranges itself in such a way that it actually becomes light sensitive, and I suppose a, maybe a better analog might be a fly's eye, because uh, a fly's eye is lots of little lenses that are coated on a sparkly surface, um, each one out, out with its own receptor. Maybe something like that could evolve on the surface yeah. of the Earth. That would be interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. It's a, it's a great question. Made it, it would make an awesome science fiction story. Yeah, there you go. There's, a, there's an idea for you. I woke up last night trying to think of a new angle on a science fiction story, but I've got other projects going on at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not ready to write a new one yet. I've got to tell you a funny story, though. Um, I got an email the other day from Amazon. Right. Uh, now, two years ago, I released The Hitler Paradox, 
And when I did, they wrote to me and said, look, we're, we're not happy with the cover. It's, um, you know, it's got a swastika sticker on it and we, we don't publish hate symbols. Can you provide us with another cover? So I did. Um, they published it with the original cover anyway. So Oh, really? Yeah, they did. And so I thought, well, okay, uh, that was your call. Yeah. Well, last week they emailed me again and said, we've, uh, you know, our quality control systems have um, picked up that uh, you've got a swastika sticker on the cover. We will not be offering this book for sale in Germany as it contravenes German law. And I said, well, fair enough. And I wrote back and said, um, you know, you are the reason this has happened because I did offer you an alternative cover and you didn't use it. Yeah. The reply was, our quality control people have noted that there is a swastika sticker on the cover of your book. And I wrote back and said, well, can I up upload the alternative cover again? And their reply was, our quality control people no, have really noted there's a swastika sticker on the cover. I tried one more time and yeah. said, can I change the cover? Our quality control people have noted there's a swastika sticker on the cover and will not be for sale in Germany. I thought, Do you are, they, are, are they using AI to deal with people? Yeah. Because Let's it be can't be human. And if it is not worried about the Terminator ever happening because yeah. it's a pretty dumb AI that answers the separate inquiries with exactly the same yeah. phrase over and over again. Dumb as a box of hammers. Anyway, I'm going to keep trying. It's been fun. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Graham. Lovely to, lovely to hear from you and a really interesting uh, angle on that theory. And if you do have questions for us, please pipe them through to us. Use some PVC and just roll it up in a piece of paper and send it our way. Or use a vacuum tube. You need a really big one, but uh, it'll get here eventually. Or you can go to our website and send us a message that way. Uh, pretty easy. Spacenutspodcast.com uh, or spacenuts.io. There's a couple of ways you can send us messages. And uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. I'm sure we'll get plenty more. And while you're there, have a look around. Uh, don't forget uh, about uh, maybe looking into becoming a patron. And we send a big shout out and thank you to all our patrons. We have many and it is greatly appreciated. It keeps the lights on. In fact, I blew a light the other day and I'll have to get a new one. Just about to go to the shop and get one. So um, thanks, for, thanks for covering that for us. Um, Fred, we're at the end of the show. It's been a really fascinating journey today. We've had some great questions and some great topics, haven't we? It's, uh, it's always good to explore the limits of, uh, well, first of all, the limits of what I know, which are relatively narrow, but uh, the, the, maybe the limits of what science knows as well. Yes, indeed. All right. Um, good to catch up, and we'll we'll see you on the next episode. Uh, I hope so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> I'll, be I'll, I'll be miffed if you have somebody else on instead. <laughs> Not a problem there. No. Uh, thank you, Fred. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and thanks to Hugh in the studio who got up early for us today, but we were five hours late. <laughs> and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. We'll see you on the next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.